Let's hear from God this morning. Turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 24. 2 Samuel chapter 24. If you just want to write this down, there's an exact parallel account of this in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, and I'll reference that also this morning. We'll read the whole chapter together. If you need to have a seat, it's, it's fine. It's no problem at all. You do what you need to do. 2 Samuel chapter 24, beginning in verse 1, says, Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and number the people, that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my Lord the king still see it. But why does my Lord the king delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan and began from Aror, and from the city that is in the middle of the valley toward Gad and on to Jazer. Then they came to Gilead and to Kadesh in the land of the Hittites, and they came to Dan, and from Dan they went around to Sidon and, from the, and came to the fortress of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hivites and Canaanites. And they went out to the Negev of Judah at Beersheba. So when they had gone out through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king, In Israel there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for, the, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angels who were working destruction among the people, It is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me. And against my father's house. I want you to hold that phrase in the back of your mind to the end of the sermon. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Get up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. 
And when Arana looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Arana went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Arana said, why has my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, to buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Arana said to David, let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Arana gives to you. And Arana said to the king, may the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Arana, no, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. Let's pray to the Lord together this morning. Heavenly Father, we know that you want to speak to us this morning because you wrote to us your word. And Lord, we can rest that in spite of our sinfulness, in spite of our inabilities, in spite of our trepidations, in spite of our flaws, that Lord, we can hear from the living God because your son was raised from the grave, because your spirit was sent to dwell within us, and because your word is sufficient in all its ways. And so Father, our confidence rests not in the ability of the preacher, Not in the polish of the sermon, but in the power of the gospel. And so, Father, we ask this morning that you would speak to us and that you would speak to us clearly in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Is God in control? Now, that seems like an obvious question at first, doesn't it? Especially when you're in church. Maybe if you weren't in church, it wouldn't be quite as obvious. But you're here and you're in church. And when somebody, especially the pastor, asks you if God is in control, the answer has to be yes, right? Except most of us have lived enough years to know that even if we know that answer intellectually, it's quite different in our experience to see it, to realize it, to believe it. Somewhere in our community this morning, there's a child being taken advantage of. Somewhere. And it causes us to wonder, is God really in control? Somewhere this week, in our community, no doubt in this county or in one of our neighboring counties, a a dad decided he was going to abandon his wife and abandon his children and abandon his family. Is God in control of that? Right now, we're watching anxiously, internationally, as Russia is on the brink of invading the Ukraine and perhaps bringing all of us into war with them. We see that. We wonder, is God really in control? We see the presence of evil in our lives, and we see the presence of suffering in our lives, and we see the reality of sin in our lives. And the question is, is if God is really good, then he doesn't want there to be evil, and he doesn't want there to be sin. And if God is all-powerful, then he can prevent there being sin, and he can prevent there being evil, and yet there is evil. So is God all-powerful, and is God all-good? Which brings us back to that question, is God really in control? And I think that our passage this morning wants us to wrestle with that question. 
that our passage this morning wants us to begin asking these questions as to the nature of God's control over all things and the nature of God's control even in the midst of our sin and even in the midst of the evil that we see and even in the midst of Satan's work here in the world. And I get that. If you'll look at 2 Samuel 24, the first verse is an interesting verse. And I think the question comes up, if the census is a sin, whose sin is it? Who's responsible for the sin that we see? Look at that first verse there with me. It says, again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. So Yahweh saw the evil that was done in his eyes in Israel, and he decided that judgment must come against Israel. And as God often does, God works through the evil existences in our world. You can think of Nebuchadnezzar, you can think of the Assyrians, how God, you can think of the Egyptians. God works through these as means of judgment against his, his people. And so God sees the evil in his people, he decides there must be a judgment against his people. But the next question is the oddest, or the next statement is the oddest. And then he, and who is he? He is the Lord incited David against them, saying, go number Israel and Judah. So the census is a sin. God's going to judge Israel for their sin. He sends David to do the census and then calls it and disciplines David. And so the question is, is who's responsible right there? That's weird, right? Is David responsible? Or is the Lord responsible? After all, didn't the Lord incite David? Didn't the Lord compel David in some way? Didn't the Lord draw this out of David somehow? There's another wrinkle yet. You remember earlier I told you that uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 21 tells a parallel of this account. And listen to how it starts out in the first verse. It's even stranger. It says, Then Satan stood against Israel. And there's a word, incited David to number Israel. So, so let me ask you, is it the Lord that incites Israel, or is it Satan or incites David, or is it Satan that incites David? So who's responsible for the sin that happens here? Who's in control of what's taking place? Who's responsible for what we see? Is it David who does it? Is it Satan who incites? Or is it the Lord who incites? I want you to have that question in the back of your mind as we go through the message this morning because I think, I think that's what it's trying to get at so that we can begin to understand the nature of our control versus God's control and how we can relate to God because there's this conflict in many of our minds between our control and God's control and we're always trying to seize control of our lives and yet God says he's always in control of our lives and so we're, we're, we're wrestling with this reality. Are our decisions, do they matter and are we responsible for them and how does Satan work and how is God in the midst of all of these things? The first thing I want you to see this morning is that we try to control what we can't. We try to control what we can't. You'll see there, beginning in uh, verse, verse 3, Joab throws up some red flags for, the David, uh, for David, right? So, so what we have here is David is at the end of his reign. And, and David is getting ready to hand over Israel to his sons. And he's doing what would, many of us would think would be a wise thing to do, something that we could empathize with him. He's wanting to kind of get a gauge of the kingdom to see where the kingdom is so that he can kind of know the status of what he's handing over to his boys. 
Based on what it says in 1 Chronicles 21 and that use of the word Satan, it can also mean adversary. And so some, some scholars have even wondered, maybe there's, a, there's a, an adversary that's out there that's doing Satan's bidding in some way. And so there's a threat of war that's lingering. And so in the background of David's mind is, I've got to make sure that my kingdom is secure. I've got to make sure that my kingdom is safe. I've got to make sure that my kingdom is ready to be passed on to the next generation that Israel might prosper into the future. And this feels admirable to us. And so he tells Joab, who's the commander of his armies, to take the rest of the commanders and to go out and to number his men, number his fighting boys. And Joab says, I've got questions, king. I've got questions. Now, it's fair for Joab to ask these questions. This is going to be about 10 months worth of work. And remember, he's not rolling around in Willis Jeeps, okay? He's not flying around in F-16s. Like, he's got to walk or ride on a horse. It's not going to be easy work for him to go among all the people and all the tribes of Israel and, and count what amounts to more than a million men. So he says, I've got questions. You want me to undertake this enormous undertaking. You want me to put my, my men in danger. You want me to stretch out my, my re resources. I've just got to say, David, I hope the Lord prospers you. I hope the Lord prospers you and enables you to see it. In fact, David, I think you already can see it, but I hope in spite of all that you can see and all the armies that you know of and all the prosperity that you've experienced, I hope the Lord adds increase to it. But David, I'm not sure about this one. I'm not sure about this one. Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my Lord the king still see it. But why does my Lord the king delight? That's an interesting word in this thing. And so in Joab's mind, there are, there are red flags as to why David should not move forward with the census. And I think the intention here, by including this detail, is to show us the resolve of David's heart to go out and to do this very thing. That David was not going into this haphazardly. David was not going in, the, in this under some measure of confusion, unsure about what he was getting himself into. David's most trusted advisor, the commander of his armies, held up red flags and said, David, this is not right. David, this is not wise. David, you should not move on. And David said, no, 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 no. My word will prevail over yours. This is what's going to happen. Let's go. And so what we see is there is a determination a determination in David's heart to count the people. Now the question becomes, why? Why is this census taking place? And why is this census a sin? Why is it taking place? And why is it a sin? And, and I think that that begins to become clear for us when we kind of begin to understand the nature. There's a lot of, commentators have a lot of theories on exactly why the census is going on and why it's a sin. A lot of people think that it's a reference back to something that happens in Exodus chapter 30. In Exodus chapter 30, God says that when his armies come together to go and to take a census, that each one of the soldiers are to pay a half shekel uh, uh, poll tax or census tax as a way of consecrating themselves for the, work, for the work. Because when you got large crowds of people together, 
together. They were at the mercy of the Lord. If one little germ dropped in the middle of Israel's army when the whole army was together, it could literally wipe out all of Israel's fighting forces. And so they were to consecrate themselves. And the Lord said in Exodus chapter 30, if you do not do this, a plague will come against you. And we know from earlier times in David's life that he forsook this tax. And so many have thought that that's what's going on here. And perhaps it is. Others have thought that David was identifying all of his people and preparing them for taxation so that as he handed over the kingdom, he could make sure that the coffers were full and the treasuries were appropriated and that his sons would be able to have all that they needed. But I don't really think either of those fits the context well. That what I think David is doing and the reason that he is counting is David wants to know how strong his army is. Another way to say this, David wants to know that he's secure and he wants to be able to see it. He wants to be able to count it. He wants a security that his eyes can behold. He wants wants strength that he can point to and identify and say, this is mine. He wants reasons why he can rest easily at night. He wants reasons why he can tell his anxious heart to stop beating so hard and his nodding stomach to calm down. He wants logical, rational, quantifiable security in his life. I think that gets to the nature of why it's a sin. I kind of have a take one to know one kind of relationship with David. I see a lot of myself uh, in David. And, and something that I, I really haven't revealed probably to you guys uh, yet and is, is that last year I went and I saw a biblical counselor. And I saw a biblical counselor because I was just going through some stuff in my life and I just I couldn't, I couldn't get it straightened out. And I needed, I needed to be able to work through it. And, I, and one of the particular things that was kind of strange that had come up in my life is whenever there was a problem, I would find myself obsessing over that problem in a way that intruded on my thoughts. And I, I wasn't able to think straight or think clearly. Let, let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. We had a camper. We had a, a leak in the wall. And y'all, th- this sounds crazy, but I, I remember what I said. This is, this is the basket case convention, right? And all I am as the lead pastor is the lead basket case, Okay. But the roof was leaking, and I would put, put my hand on the wall, and I could feel the water coming in, and I would try to fix it, and I couldn't fix it, and I would try to fix it, and I couldn't fix it. And so what it got is I would go, and I would check and recheck and recheck and recheck the wall of the camper over and over and over and again in a way that was, that was obsessive, in a way that was unhealthy, in a way that was, was intrusive into my life. I would go and I would, I would log into my, my banking account and my savings account and I would check it and check it and check it and check it as, as if anything could change in 30 minutes while both of us are at work. And so the counselor said that I struggled with something called hypervigilance. Hypervigilance. And hypervigilance is essentially the obsession to control outcomes. It's the obsession to control outcomes. And what happens in the life of a person who is hypervigilant is that when they come to an outcome that they cannot control or they come to a problem that they cannot solve or they come to a predicament that they cannot foresee and predict the outcome, it unravels them as a person. That is, unbelief often manifests as hypervigilance, as counting as checking, as rechecking, 
as trying to find something that will secure you, that your eyes can see, that your hands can touch, that your mind can count. That is, it is an attempt to walk by sight and not by faith. It is an attempt to walk by my control and my ability and my wisdom and not by the sovereign hope and the sovereign grace and the sovereign mercy of a risen Lord. And there, I think we get to the issue with David. David is hypervigilant. He finds his confidence not in the promises that God has made. He finds his promises not in God's proven faithfulness over the course of his life. He finds his hope not in God's word, not in God's character, God, not in God's nature, but in what his eyes can see. Let me count something else. Let me number one more thing. Let me control one more outcome. And David is on the edge of spinning out of control because it is an outcome that he cannot control. I wonder in your life, I wonder in your life, where do you find your security? Do you find your security in what your eyes can see or do you find your security in what God has said? Do you find your security in God's proven faithfulness? Do you find your security in God's promises assured and fulfilled to you through experience? Or how many times during the day are you checking your bank account? How many times during the day does your mind go to where is my pistol? How many times during the day are you logging into Facebook to see how many likes and shares your posts have so that you can be reminded one more time that people still like you and people still care about you and people still think highly of you? Where, where are you finding your security? The sin in David's heart is that he needed security that he could see. Can the same be said of us? See, we, want to, we try to control what we can't. But not only that, but we see that we test the limits of mercy. We test the limits of mercy. It, it's interesting exactly what happens here. And it, it's almost funny. Like, so he, see, he sends someone called a seer. A seer. Now, that, that's a really, really cool. I wish I could have that on my nameplate outside of my office. The seer. Cody Hill, the seer. Um, and, and, and a seer is really an, an uh, old way, an old word used for a prophet, to describe a prophet. And so what we have here is a similar scene to what we saw all the way back in 1 Samuel, or 2 Samuel chapter 12, when Nathan comes and confronts David for his sin with Bathsheba. We have another prophet, now Gad, coming to David to confront him with his sin once more and to present him with what God's consequences are against David in the sin. And every person in this room that grew up in the deep south that are my age and older, you've lived this scene before. Listen to what Gad says. He says, so Gad came to David and told him and said to him, you shall, three things he offers, you said to him, shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer, what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Do you know what Gad is saying? Go, go find your switch. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Now some of, y'all, some of y'all are not from around here, all right? And you don't know anything about this. But every person that had a southern mama knows what it means to go and find your switch. It is a form of sadistic psychological warfare. 
that you were supposed to go into the woods, which, by the way, implies that you live in the woods like I did. You're supposed to go into the woods and you were supposed to find the weapon of your own demise and bring it to your mother. So that then, she, and of course, you know how this plays out, right? All of you have written this story before. You go out and you find the one that's like, you know, half dead, that like breaks when you pick it up. And you're like being really fragile with it so that when you hand it over to your mom, she goes to swing and it just snaps in her hand. And then she just gets madder though, doesn't she? And she comes back and she's got a sawed off tree, you know? That's exactly what happens here. Gad comes to David and he says, all right, the Lord has come and he is bringing judgment against you. And so you must choose. Are you going to choose three years of famine, three months of the pursuit of your enemies, or three days of pestilence, a plague, a disease to come among your people? And I think there's a couple of reasons why, why God does this. I think the first reason that God does this is, again, he's getting to this message of control, isn't he? He's getting to this message of control. That there's a sense in which what God is saying to David through Gad is, do you really want to control your outcomes? Do you really want to control where your life goes? Do you really want to be a master of your own fate? Let me show you, David, that when you are in control and when you are making the decisions and when you take your fate in your own hands, the only thing that's left is bad decisions. I mean, do you want to make a choice among these three? I don't. And David certainly wouldn't have either. And so the proof is in the pudding. You want to be in control? I'll let you be in control, David. But what the lesson you need to learn is, is that none of those choices, none of those options are going to go the way that you want them to go. Because you can't bear the weight of your own life. The second reason, and I think the more prominent reason that we see, is that what God is doing in David's life is God is drawing out of David's heart who he is. That, that God is drawing David's heart unto himself so that he can see what's inside the man. So that he can expose him. So that he can see whether or not he's truly repentant. So that he can see whether or not he's a man that's truly after his own heart. What's interesting about David, and probably, I hope you picked up on it, I, I tried to lay out the sermons in a particular way so that you could see this maybe a little more clearly. But I think what we're supposed to see is David is a repeat offender. David is a repeat offender. Wouldn't you think if you just went through all David went through, basically everything in 2 Samuel from chapter 11 all the way up to chapter 24 is the result of David's sin against Bathsheba. And we have this prayer from David in Psalm 51. And the Lord restores David. And David's still dealing with the consequences. But he's been restored and his shame's been removed and his guilt's been removed. And don't you think that if you were David and you had experienced all of this from the Lord that you would want to walk the straight and narrow from this point forward? Well, do you do that? No, what we see in David is that David does not become a perfect man after his repentance. And that repentance is never understood in the biblical context to be a one-time experience. There is a one-time moment in which God comes in like we talked about last week and he regenerates your heart and he makes you into a new man. But over time you're being sanctified and over time you're maturing in the Lord and over time you're growing in the Lord. And so repentance becomes a lifestyle becomes a posture of permanence in your life. And but what we see in 2 Samuel 24 that is completely different than what we saw in 2 Samuel chapter 12 is here in verse 24, David's sin, David is being held accountable for his sin, all of Israel is being held accountable for his sin, but David is viewed in a positive light. 
David is viewed in a positive light. Here we have a repeat offender, a repeat sinner, and he's actually being presented by the narrator, not in a negative light, but in a positive light. And that's because of what is being drawn out of his heart by the Lord. Look at what it says. That, that we see these steps of repentance in, in David's life. And if you think back to Psalm 51, what we saw last week, you can begin to, to lay and see these parallels. In other words, David's learning from his experiences. David's growing in his walk with the Lord. Notice what it says, first of all. It shows that he is convicted for his sin. His heart is struck. Now, this is interesting. It's similar to like the language that we would use. I have, I've had a heart attack. I've had my, my, my heart is literally waging war against me. It is striking me. It is trying to defeat me. It is trying to bring me under control. It is trying to bring me to my knees. My, my heart is pounding out of my chest and control, though I wish I could. Secure, though I wish I could. Obsess, though I may. Count as though I will. I can't stop the pounding that's in my heart. This is a complete change of posture than what we saw when he initiated the cover-up. This is a complete change of posture. That what we see now in David is not a hardened heart, but a soft heart. A heart that is, that is, that is, that is disgusted by his sin and broken by his sin and pounding by his sin. This is a picture of the conviction, the guilt that comes upon the conscience when you realize you have sinned against Almighty God. Look at what we see next. Next, we see that David confessed. So he is, he is convicted. And remember what we said, the reflex of the repentance is what? Confession. And so David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly. And so here is a confession. A confession of the sin. Lord, I, I know what I've done is sin against you. I know what I've done has has." brought shame upon your name. I know what I have done has brought enmity between you and I. I know what I have done has, has been a defiance of your goodness and a defiance of your character. I have sinned greatly. He's not minimizing it. He's confessing it boldly, clearly, obviously to the Lord. But then I think the third thing that we see is really what's being gotten at here in 2 Samuel chapter 24 and what God is calling for in your mind and your lives. It says then, David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. Let me not fall into the hand of man. And that is a concession. So you have conviction, confession, and then concession. That what David does ultimately is he says, let me concede control of my life into the hands of the Lord. That gets back to our three choose-your-switch options. What is God trying to reveal by the particular options that he presents? Three years of famine, what is David dependent upon? If he chooses three years of famine, David becomes dependent upon his diplomatic ability to go and to, to reason with other nations to give them the sustenance in Israel that they would need to survive for three years. Three months of, of being pursued by his enemies. What does that do for David? David then has to double down on the count of his army and go to his fighting men and his valiant men and go on the offensive to be able to strike down his enemies. And so again, it's a, it's a look in David's own abilities. But three days pestilence. A germ dropped in the midst of his people that will spread like a pandemic. What we've all learned, David knows, you can't control it. Only God can control the fate 
Only God is superintending over all of the diseases and plagues that can come against us. So what David says is, I will not trust in my diplomatic authority and I will not trust in my military prowess. What I will trust is I will concede the control of my people. I will concede the control of my life. I will concede the control of my military and the control of my kingdom unto the Lord because what I know is that in the Lord's hands, I will find mercy. So do you see what God is doing? God, by the inciting of David into into the census, is only revealing what's already in David's heart to begin with. To incite means to provoke. To provoke so that you respond in a way that seems right to you. So that you respond in a way that seems reasonable to you. To respond in a way that would reveal your character, your heart, And so God draws in this situation the heart and character out of David so that David can see that there's ugliness still there. There's sin still there. There's pride still there. There's still unbelief in his heart. There's still confidence in what he can see and not in what God has said that is still there. But at the same time to draw out that God really has given him a new heart. That God has really created in him a new heart, a heart now that is softened towards sin, a heart now that re- whose reflex is to confess his sin, a heart now that says, above all, woe is me, oh God, I concede the controls of my life unto your authority. And then that does something that blows the mind. David, or in 2 Samuel It writes in verse 16, I want you to look at it. This is an important word. And depending on your translation, it's going to be different. It says, and when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it is enough, now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. The word relent there, your Bible may have it as repent. What we see here is repentance in the life of God. Like, what does that even mean? Repentance means a change of direction. Now, in our lives, that change of direction is always a change away from sin and toward the Lord. It's a change away from selfish motive and self-importance and, and self-security and self-righteousness toward what only God has said and what only God can provide and what only God can do. But God, God does not turn away from sin because God does not sin and God cannot sin. John the apostle wrote, there is no, he is light and there is no darkness in him at all. So what does it mean when he repents? God's repentance is when God's mercy overcomes his justice. God's repentance is when his mercy changes the direction of his wrath so that you know him by grace and not by enemy, not by force, not by ferocity. That God incites David, that he might draw repentant heart out of David And then when David repents, David's repentant heart draws a repentant heart out of God to say, thus far the judgment will come and no farther you will rely and relate to me by my mercy. And so here's what we have that is the hope for me and for you. Up until this point, 
We've seen David fall and fall and fall again. And we get here in 2 Samuel 24 and we have this repeat offender. And we can't help but wonder, at this point, is God going to allow David to be crushed? How many times can David repent? How many times can David confess his sins and walk away? How many times will God forgive David? And what we find out here is that God's mercy has no limit. You cannot strike out with God. You cannot outsend his mercy and his grace. There is nothing in your life that God finds that is unforgivable. And so I wonder this morning, if you've heard all these messages that we've preached over the last three or four weeks, and you've said, yes, there was a time if I, would have, if I could go back five years, then I would repent because it would matter. But right now I'm in too deep. I've, I've, I've asked for forgiveness too many times. I've sinned far too severely. I'm, I'm past the point of any return. And I wonder if you think that you have exceeded the limit of God's mercy. David is the reminder, the repeat offender, that there is no limit on God's mercy. And that God's mercy is willing, ready, and able to forgive, to sanctify, to transform the most most prolific of all sinners. Including you. Including you. Including that pounding heart that you have when you try to go to sleep at night including that pounding heart that wakes you up first thing in the morning, including that pounding heart that you try to soothe in all the wrong ways, that God, God is drawing out of your heart repentance that you might draw from through your repentance out of his heart mercy. We test the limits of God's mercy. And then finally, what I want you to see is that ultimately, we're going to testify to the sovereignty of God. We're going to testify to the sovereignty of God. I think there's some questions that we need to end and and ask ourselves as we bring this to a conclusion. I think the first question that we need to ask ourselves is why is this story even really included? In, in the grand scheme, we know, we, we've been, if you've been keeping up with us in the big story, what we figure out is that all of these stories fit together to reveal a meta-narrative, a big picture of what God is up to. So how does such an enigmatic, weird, strange story like this fit into the meta-narrative? And the point is, is what we're supposed to see taking place in 1 Chronicles 22.1. Then David said, hear Here shall be the house of the Lord God and here the altar of burnt offering for Israel. That what we're supposed to see is that the place of the temple did not come about by accident. The place in which would be the the locus of God's people offering atonement for their sins would not come about as just a random selection by, by Solomon or by David. No, God, God was superintending all of the works to bring it to a particular place. And so why here? Why here? That's the next question. Why here at the, at the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite? He's not even a Jew. He is one of the old school Canaanites that grew up in, that, that's who the Jebusites were from Jerusalem. Why here? Where is this? Verse 16. And when the angel stretched out his arm toward Jerusalem to destroy it, that's where the Lord relented from the calamity. And said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, It is enough. It is enough. Now stay your hand. That, that is, that the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite, is the exact spot, the exact location in which God's mercy overcame his wrath. 
And so right there where he said his, where his mercy overcame his wrath, God said, this, this will be the locus in which my people will come together and they will seek my mercy to overcome their sin. And so he says, David, build me an altar right there. And David goes and he's going to build the altar. And, and Arana the Jebusite seems to be an honorable man who fears the Lord. And he says, I'm going to give you all of this. And what does David say? No way, Jose. No way, Jose. I'm not offering up to the Lord an offering that costs me nothing. There's, there's a word for us, brothers and sisters, in that. I'm not going to offer up to the Lord worship that doesn't cost me anything. I'm not going to offer up to the Lord a sacrifice for my sins because atonement does not come cheap. Forgiveness does not come cheap. And so he pays and he begins to lay a ram whose blood begins to spill over the land. And you have to wonder that if in David's mind, it doesn't go back to this very same location. You see, 2 Chronicles chapter 3 tells us that this place comes up earlier in Scripture another time. In Genesis chapter 22, do you remember what happens there? It's another lesson on the costliness of atonement and the costliness of sin. Uh, Abraham marches his son Isaac up to Mount Moriah, the same place that becomes the threshing floor for Arana the Jebusite. And he marches him up and he lays his boy, his beloved boy, his God-given boy on the altar. And he raises the knife and he's going to plunge it into the heart of his son. And then over, over in the briar patch there is a ram, a ram caught by his horns. And it is a lesson that there must be a substitute, but there must be bloodshed, and there must be death in the place of the sin. So upon that spot, they were going to erect a temple, and they were going to erect, they were going to erect altars, and, and right there on that spot, over the years, a lot of blood was going to be shed every day. So much so that the dirt, the dirt would be red in color, because the blood that was shed for the atonement of the people was a sign, it was a picture, it was a prefiguring that your atonement, your worship, your sacrifice, it is costly, it is expensive. That if you want to experience that moment in which God's mercy overcomes his wrath toward you, it's not coming free. But even that, even that was a prefiguring. Do you remember what David said when he realized his own sin? I have sinned. Do not harm these sheep, for they are innocent. Bring it down. Bring your wrath down on me and on my father's house. Bring it down on me and all that are from me. But David, David could not take the place for sinners as a sinner. But the wrath of God was one day just a stone's throw away from this location, going to come down upon the house of David when the son of David would be erected there on a cross. And there, God's mercy would overcome his wrath in finality and we would see the costliness of atonement and the costliness of forgiveness right here. Now let me ask you. Let's go back to our original question. Who's in control? Who's in control? You see what this story teaches us is that it's a matter of perspective. It's a matter of perspective. Is it David? Well, yeah. Why did David sin? How could he be incited? Because it's what was in his heart. David did what David wanted to do. So David is responsible. Is it Satan? 
Yeah. Satan tempted David. Satan drove and incited David to do that which was evil against the Lord. Why? Because Satan did what he wanted to do. And that's exactly how you see it if you read this story forward, as the author of 1 Chronicles does. But if you read this story backwards, is the Lord responsible? You better believe he's in control. David is responsible because he did what he wanted to do. Satan is responsible because he did what he wanted to do. But the Lord is responsible because he did what he planned to do. And all of these things are working together for the good of his people, for the glory of his name. And in fact, God was at work through Satan's intonations to destroy his people, to ultimately destroy Satan himself when that cross would hang there and hang Satan on his own self-made gallows. See, don't read forward, brothers and sisters, a story that's only meant to be, be read backwards. Let's pray to the Lord together. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, and what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. We would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon.